Father God, we give you great thanks today for our brothers and sisters gathered in the church today. I pray, Lord, that um, as we approach the hearing of your word and the instruction in your word, as we continue on, Father, with our singing and our uh, encouraging of one another later on in Sunday school, um, Father, that it would better equip us to show the onlooking world around us the good news that Jesus is King and he is making all things new uh, right now. Father, we remember our brothers and sisters that are gathering all around the world today and throughout the week. Father, that your spirit would be with them and encourage and bless them, give them safety. We also, Father, remember specifically nearby uh, the church that gathers at South Liberty, that Pastor Coburn leads. We ask that your spirit would be with them in a special way this morning, uh, also encouraging them through the word, building them up. Father, um, we just come to you and, and seek your help this morning by your spirit as we read and hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither did he to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than God the edifying which is in faith so do now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from which some having swerved having turned aside into vain jangling desire to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him the life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 
Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, son of Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on me, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we're in First Timothy, and about nine years ago went through Second Timothy here, and probably going to do First Timothy before. Um, when Paul writes his letters, there's a certain pattern to how he writes. When he writes his earlier letters, there's different emphasis than his letters that he wrote in prison, his middle letters, and then letters that were in, like right now, First Timothy, his later letters that are many times called pastoral epistles. In the early letters, he puts a great emphasis on understanding the clarity of the gospel. And so you think of the letters like Galatians and Romans and First and Second Corinthians and First uh, and Second Thessalonians. And then his middle letters, when he's in prison at the end of the book of Acts, he writes from prison and he puts an emphasis on understanding the plan of the church. And so he writes Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and Philippians, and they're writing to churches to, to, uh, to strengthen them in their understanding of this great calling that God called them to when he gave them the gospel, that they're, they're, they're not just individuals, but part of a congregation, a family, and this family has, has this mission, and here's what it looks like, within and without. And then, at the end of his life, Paul writes these three letters, First Timothy, then probably Titus in order, and then his last letter, a letter written on death row, probably a second imprisonment here, for his life, he writes these letters that we commonly call pastoral epistles. But they're really only called pastoral epistles. It began in the 1800s. Really, these are missionary letters. And T Timothy is, is less of a pastor and more of a representative of Paul, an apostolic representative. And he has been left behind in Ephesus, that very church that we looked at um, in, uh, in Acts chapter 18 through 20, the last couple weeks. And we saw how that church was started. We saw the elders, the pastors that Paul had raised up in three years there through his ministry, house to house teaching and also publicly teaching. And we saw that Paul warned them that out of those elders, even out of the pastors, there are going to be wolves that will rise up. And Paul chose these guys very carefully. You know the, the, um, the, the, the grid that he chose um, men to lead the church from. Yet still out of that, he knew that there was going to arise things that were not in line with the tenor of Scripture. And so he challenges Timothy here, and you see in verse 3, stay still at Ephesus, and there in Ephesus, he's supposed to uh, show what the genuine article is. And call the church to live in line with that, beginning with the leadership. And so these pastoral epistles, better called probably missionary letters or establishing letters, are, have a theme of, of, of leadership, of the leaders in the church. And Titus and Timothy, Paul calls nowhere else, nobody else, but he calls these two men in this, these, this, this time of his life when he's passing the baton here, he calls them his true sons in the faith. Very special, special title for and here in Timothy, the setting here is a, is a city of Ephesus, and it's significant here 
that Paul's writing to Timothy, that he has his key man, Timothy, there in Ephesus, that he's writing to encourage Timothy for the church in Ephesus because 40% of the New Testament has some connection with Ephesus. Church history tells us that John, the Apostle, served at the church of Ephesus in his later years. In fact, um, church history tells us that Jesus' mother, Mary, went with John to serve in Ephesus, very possibly Mary Magdalene as well, and others. And there was a key, uh, 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 it was a key hub here for the gospel sounding out throughout the world, this time in Ephesus. Paul spends a lot of time in Ephesus. So it's significant that he's sending his key man, Timothy, here. And that he wants this church strengthened because it will have a ripple effect. John, uh, later on, as I mentioned, was there. And, uh, and so you have the book of Revelation connected with it, with the church at Ephesus. You have John's uh, gospel, probably written from Ephesus in his three letters, very possibly. You have the book of Ephesians that Paul has written earlier, before 1 Timothy. You, of course, have 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, Timothy's still at Ephesus here. And so you have a lot of material here connected with the city in Ephesus. And that letter that has already proceeded to build up the church that Paul gave to Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, tells us that all of life is, is, is a life of relationship, beginning with relationship to God and relationship to people. And this is a setting that has, that has set the table here, that, that Paul has, 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 has discipled these pastors to understand and raised up this team of pastors in Ephesus, but also given this letter to be distributed to the churches, the book of Ephesians, here to remind us that all things are to be united uh, in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about our relationship to God and how uh, God's purpose is to unite all things in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, um, he talks about uh, how God has united the nations in Christ. And then our relationship with the family of God in Ephesians chapter 2. Our relationship to this task in chapter 3, this mission that Paul had to unite all things under Christ. The relationship in each individual household and families to unite all things in Christ. The relationship to the marketplace in Ephesians um, chapter 6. To the unseen realm and dark powers with that spiritual warfare, the churches to march arm in arm forward here with the armor of God here. And it's all relationships. And so Timothy here and Paul have been engaged in this movement of churches to unite all things in Christ, under Christ's headship. And so it brings us to these first couple verses. And so this is more of an introduction to the book. But the key verse in 1 Timothy is chapter 3 and verse 15. Paul didn't know how long he would be away from Ephesus. He didn't know what things were going to hold up. But if something was going to hold him up, here's what he wanted Timothy to know in 1 Corinthians, First Timothy 3, verse 15. But if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave or conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar and ground of the truth. And that's the key verse of 1 Timothy 3, and everything relates to that. But let's look at the first couple verses here before we get into the rest of the chapter in the upcoming weeks. Paul, Apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, that Timothy, my own son in the faith, 
Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's Paul. This Gentile, a Christian name here. You have, uh, you have him described as an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle. The term apostle in the New Testament is used in a couple sen- senses here. It, it, uh, it can refer to apostles of the churches, kind of a lesser degree. There are apostles of the churches like uh, Barnabas is called an apostle. Andronicus, Junia, James, the Lord's brother, Silas or Silvanus, Timothy, Epaphroditus, uh, Apollos. There's a couple not mentioned by name in 2 Corinthians 8. But these were apostles sent by the churches. And then there were the twelve apostles. You could say these are the big A apostles. These have a special authority here. But which one is, is Paul? Paul says an apostle of who? Jesus Christ. There's an authority here. Apostle means a representative, a messenger here. A, an envoy. One who is sent forth here. Do you want to see what an apostle was? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. These are the big A apostles here. They had authority. They weren't just servants of a church sent out. There is an authority directly from God they've been given. And 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1 says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of my apostleship are you in the Lord. Proof is in the labors that Paul had there in Corinth. These were apostles directly chosen by God versus apostles of the churches. They were authoritative representatives of King Jesus to pioneer movements of Jesus that resulted in multiplying churches of all nations. These twelve apostles, and actually thirteen if you count Matthias here and Paul adding to that twelve, had a unique position. In Revelation 21, 14, it says the walls of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. They're referred to in the Gospels. The writers of the Gospels uh, make it very clear that these twelve disciples were the twelve apostles who were the first messengers of the Gospel after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was these twelve apostles who the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone in the book of Ephesians 2.20. This kind of apostle is not in the church today. These apostles were, 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 were supposed to have been a witness of the resurrected Christ with their own visible eyeballs. They have been explicitly chosen by the Holy Spirit in Acts 9.15. They had the ability to perform signs and wonders in Acts 2.43 and 2 Corinthians 12.12. And the responsibility of these twelve apostles was to lay the foundation of the church. And that's why they're unique here. And the church, early church continued in the apostles' doctrine in Acts chapter 2. These are big A apostles. What you might understand today when somebody says an apostle today and they say they have an authority is not congruent with Scripture. Although I do think there are people who are sent by churches as apostles here under the authority of the church in the sense that they are, are, uh, are pioneers in ministry. They don't have this authority of these 12 day apostles. The day apostles. Notice Paul says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. 
according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Paul is, is, is responding in obedience. He's responding to something here. He didn't say, hey, you know what, I'm pretty impressed with myself and Jesus, I think you can use me to be an apostle. No, he was chosen by God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was commanded. And you remember when he got knocked off his horse in the book of Acts, it wasn't like he was really excited to do this, was he? God humbled him. Remember what he was doing before that, on his way to Damascus. He was killing, uh, he was against this movement. He was, he was destroying believers. But that word commandment, or command there in verse 1 here, is a word in the ancient Greek that was used of royal directives. Things to be obeyed from a king without any kind of argument back. And so Paul sees himself as one who is under orders. He sees his appointment to this apostleship as God's will. Colossians 1.1. And his use of command here doesn't mean that uh, uh, it has the idea here that, that God is the divine source of his appointment. And he's using this to gain support from this church in Ephesians here for the directions he's going to, going to give to Timothy. And so, it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was key. What was his task here? What was the commandment of God? Well, in Acts chapter 26, verse 16 through 19, one of the things that, was that, that, Timothy, or that, that Paul was to do under the commandment of God was he was to proclaim the, uh, the, the, the riches of Christ. He was to to suffer for the sake of God's name, and he was going to reach the Gentiles, he was going to be apostle of the Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, he says, you can boil that down, my appointment for ministry was two things. Number one, it was to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, and number two, it was to explain the plan for the church, the administration of the church. You can see that in Acts 3, 9 through 13. And so that was the commandment of God. That was his commission here. And then he says, uh, of God our Savior, God who through the Old Testament and New Testament is the working this mission here to, to redeem the world here. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who or which is our hope. The Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus. When we hear the word Jesus Christ, or we hear the phrase Christ Jesus, as it's sometimes used, it's a word that's not just Jesus' first and last name. It's a word that is to direct our eyes upward in awe of the one who was from the lowly village of Nazareth, who suffered, died, was buried, rose again in victory, and has ascended in glory. And it's the one who is the king of the universe. And so when Paul says, our, uh, just by the command of God, say you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's saying is Messiah Jesus. King Jesus. And this King Jesus is the one who is our hope. King Jesus, in other words, Paul says, is a person with a promised certain outcome. See, in Jesus, God has begun this, this redemption that He's going to consummate one day when He returns. Christ has been our hope because we made Him the object of our trust, our allegiance, and we look with expectancy for His unveiling when He returns. 
A lot of times we think of hope and we say, wow, you know, little girls, I really hope I'm going to get a doll for Christmas. Or boys, boy, I hope I get, you know, that remote control for Christmas. Or adults, I hope I get that boat someday. Or I hope I get that car someday. Or I hope we can do that remodeling project. Right? It's kind of squishy. It may or may not happen. It's a nice wish. That's sometimes what we think of hope. But in the New Testament, hope is a promised certain outcome. It's an internal certainty of an unseen reality. A certainty. And in Jesus, he's not a squishy hope. He's a firm foundation here. It's an absolute certainty of accomplishment. There's no doubt as to what will happen. It will happen. Our hope in Jesus will become a reality. And I want you to understand here that our hope isn't just a thing. Our hope is a person. It's a person. Now, how many of you have people who failed? You had certain expectations and they failed. And so maybe you're wondering, can hope really be a person because of my experience? The truth of it is, this one's different. This hope is different. This is a promised, certain, for sure, 100% guaranteed outcome. Our hope in Jesus will become a reality. And as I look at this first verse here, it makes me wonder here, uh, how, what, what is the application for us today? We're not apostles. We don't have that authority. Maybe some of you have some apostolic giftings in the sense that you, you are pioneers and stuff, that uh, you, are, you are self-starters, you have this sense of, of entrepreneurship that God uses in his, in his mission for, for um, um, getting the ball rolling here and overseeing movements here. Maybe some of you have those kind of giftings. That's what we're seeing here as Paul being an a big a apostle here. So you might wonder what the relevance is. And, 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 and my question is this, as I begin to think about this. Well, what is your relationship to the Lord? What's your calling? Now, if you were to, to write a letter and, and, and you were to put your name, calling in the blank, like Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. What would you put in there? Put your name in there. Blank. A blank of Jesus Christ. By the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. What's your calling? Can you say that what you do in life is God's will because you seek the kingdom of God first above all things? And here's a morbid thought. A little jarring. But intended to provide some friction to think about it. What if you had to write your own obituary? What would God want it to say? How would your life then need to be ordered in order to do that? Or maybe another way to say is this. What's your role in the expansion of his kingdom? I'm glad you're here this morning listening to the word of God here. But there's more to it than that, isn't it? What's your role in the expansion of his kingdom and building up his church in our region? How can God use you to contribute to your neighborhood, becoming a beachhead for the gospel in our area. Wouldn't it be amazing to be able to say that each of our neighborhoods that we live in are beachheads for the gospel in our area? I know we don't really have neighborhoods in the sense that we live in suburbia, but we have neighbors. How does your life make the transformation of Jesus Christ the King 
non-ignorable, some would say. How, do you, how can you collaborate with others to make the name and work of Jesus famous? God's given us the great commandment to love God and love our neighbors. He's given us a great commission to make disciples of all nations for evangelizing and edifying, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, their relationship, and teaching them to obey whatsoever I've commanded them. And he's also given us a great collaboration. A great collaboration. Commandments, commission, and collaboration. The collaboration is the idea that none of us are expected to do it in and of ourselves. That we're supposed to work together as teams, as a family, to propel the mission of God forward by His grace as we plant and water and prayerfully trust God for increase. What's your relationship to the Lord? What's your calling? Put your name and your calling in the blank and live according to that. And notice what he says in verse 2. To Timothy, my own son of the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> that word, under the, now we know who it's written to, right? Timothy. Um, that word, uh, my, my own son in the faith, in the King James, is, should be translated my true child in the faith. My true son in the faith. And some of your translations will reflect that. In fact, you can see even in the King James how that is translated in Philippians 4, verse 3. Where Paul says, and I entreat you also, true yotel, or fellow laborers. It's the same word. True. Genuine is the idea. Help those women which labored with me in the gospel. Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. And so he's writing to Timothy saying, my true child in the faith. My genuine child in the faith. Where did he meet Timothy? He met Timothy in Acts 16. On his first missionary journey, or his second missionary journey, as he was following up with the churches that he planted in Acts 14, 13, and 14. And there's this boy, probably in Lystra, one of the cities there in what was Galatia, the area of Galatia. And he had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, we find out in 2 Timothy, as Paul tells more about him. And this guy is well spoken of by the believers. Well spoken. Now, what would make a young man well-spoken among the church? What would you say? What would have stood out? And this is free, conjecture. What would you say? What would make a guy, a young man among the congregation stand out? A faithfulness, okay. Consistency, is that what you mean by faithfulness? Okay, yeah. Anything else? What's that? Integrity. Integrity. Yeah. This guy does what he says. He, he's, he's, a, he's a real deal, publicly and privately. Humble servant. Okay. Humility. Humility. Okay. Anything else? Concern for souls. Okay. Concern for people. Okay. Great faith in the world. Okay. A great faith. Um, what, what do you mean by a great faith? What does a great faith look like? What's a great faith? Okay, so he's obedient, puts himself in obedience to Jesus. So there were things that were sticking out, and probably there was some other stuff here, a sense of giftedness as well, right? That seemed to be apparent to the congregation. Timothy, 
And so he's a Jewish mother, he's got a, they've got a Jewish mother, got a Gentile father, and what Timothy becomes is kind of a picture of what Paul says is true about the church in Ephesians 2, Jew and Gentile being one. And so he becomes this bridge into this mission of the Jewish gospel, the Savior King, to the nations. And so God uses Timothy here. But why is Timothy so special? I'd like you to flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Why could Paul say he's my genuine child of the faith? He's my true son in the faith. Why could he say this? Well, Philippians chapter 2. And after talking about Jesus Christ, the example of a servant, Paul gives two human illustrations of this. He gives the illustration, first of all, of Timothy. And then he gives the illustration of Epaphroditus, beside Paul himself being an illustration of this. And so Paul says this in verse 19 of Philippians 2. And listen to these words. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly to you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state or your condition. I mean, look what he says about Timothy, verse 20. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But you know the proof, the try worth of him, that as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Then therefore I hope to send presently, immediately, so soon, so as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord, that I also myself shall come shortly. So why is Timothy his true son in the faith? Why did Paul say when he was recommended by the brethren, hey, come with me on the second missionary journey? Why? Because this is a guy who is like-minded for the things of God. Like-minded for this mission. And despite his youth, Timothy gained Paul's confidence and he served as his trusted companion and emissary for about 17 and 20 years as an apprentice to Paul. Born in Lystra, Grandmother Eunice, Greek father, Jewish mother, and Paul's return a year or so later in Acts 16, he said, Timothy, come with me in Silas. At the book of, end of the book of Hebrews, Timothy himself was in jail for the Lord's work. And so he's his beloved, his, his faithful, his trustworthy child in the Lord. And when Paul's in prison in Rome and writing his letter on death row in 2 Timothy, it's Timothy he asked to come before winter to comfort him. We really don't know what happened after 2 Timothy with Timothy besides um, uh, church uh, traditions and history, but one of the church historians, Eusebius, in the third 300s or so, says that after Paul's death, Timothy uh, becomes the, uh, the leader of, of, of pastors there in Ephesus, probably around age 40. Lives another 30 years after Paul. Um, he is uh, he, he he may have been stoned to death in 89, 97 because he protested some of the things that were going on with idol worship. Well, what's the application we can take from this today? None of us are Timothy, but there's a relationship Paul has, isn't there? There's a vertical relationship, right? Paul's an apostle of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ according to the commandment here. 
uh, he, 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 he lives in the hope. He's, he has this vertical relationship. But it can only be a true relationship. This vertical relationship then starts going this way as well. Other people. Paul had a lot of people he invested in. Timothy and Titus were this, were the, seemed to be the two closest. And Timothy seemed to be the closest out of those two. I want to ask you this morning. Who's your Timothy? Who is your Timothy? Or Timothy? <laughs> Who is it? Who will you take to heaven with you along with your family? That was your true son or daughter in the faith. What one person are you going to push into for the sake of making disciples? There is a barren desert for this sort of thing in our churches. Who poured into you? And what impact did that have? Nobody? Alright, that, that's pretty lame, isn't it? So what are you going to do to change that? You didn't see that model? Alright. So who are some people who are modeling that that you can follow after? Who are you pouring into? And if all our concern is what I can get from something instead of what I, who, who can I directly pour into here in a gospel relationship here of, 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 of fathers and sons, mothers and daughters in the faith here, um, if, if, if we push into that, God, God does powerful things. Let me just give you an example here in the secular world of this. Um, Christina Dove is a volunteer event coordinator at the Bill... Billy Earl Day Memorial School, our middle school in Dallas, Texas. And she, she thought, you know what we need to do for our school? We need to spearhead a breakfast with dads event at the school. And she encouraged the students there in Dallas to bring their fathers or people who are their father figures to school for breakfast. That was a, a way to engage the students' families during the school day. And it's important, you know, that middle school age there of, uh, of, these, of, these, of these male figures. And so she found out, though, that nearly 150 of this school's 11 to 13-year-old students were not expecting to have their fathers in attendance. And so she put the word out. And she put a request on social media for volunteers, hoping that she'd get 50, at least, to correspond to these 150 kids. And instead, hundreds of people responded overnight. Within a few days, she reached over, over 400 men who seemed to be interested in mentoring at the day of the actual event. 600 showed up for these 150 kids here. She was very moved. And, and, and one, of her, one of the photos, a man had a, had, a, had, a, had a black suit jacket here, and he had a, a plaque that said, Our Sons Matter. That's taking ownership, isn't it? Taking ownership. Guys, who are the young men you're pouring into? We had some men this year, three, three gentlemen who graduated from high school. Who's going to take them under their wing? Who are the young men who are that generation right below you? Ladies, who are the ladies that you're trying to help or you, and, 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 and nurturing the gospel? God calls us to stand in the gap. If there's one institution, one organism, one family that should be doing this more than the world, it's Jesus' church. In fact, Titus 2 tells us this is a command to happen. So who's your Timothy or who's your Timothy? Young people, who's the kid below you? That stage you went through that you can share 
with that you can take a special interest in. And my wife's school, one of the things they did was they had the older kids, the high school kids, um, take a, a, a particular young person in junior high or, or upper elementary under their wing. And um, my wife's, um, when she was in junior high, upper elementary, the person she was paired with was a, with, was a girl named Tara Savage. And to this day, they're still friends. And Tara sticks out in my wife's mind as somebody who resisted the peer pressure of being cool in high school and actually invested in somebody who wasn't cool in junior high. A young kid. It had an impact. The cool thing is, Tara is a pastor's wife today, and she's just uh, still carrying on the Lord in a variety of ways, and she's been served in China, and now she's in the San Francisco area there trying to reach um, uh, Google employees <laughs> over there in San Francisco. God's using her today, but it started when she was in high school. And it had an impact on my life. Stand in the gap. God prepares people to do the right thing and call upon. And it's scary, you've got to take a risk. But let's look at the rest of chapter 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Outside of this letter, only 2 Timothy has this threefold greeting. If you look at Paul's letters, all of Paul's letters, they say, Paul, you know, servant of Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Here there's something different. There's a trifold blessing here. There is there's grace and there is mercy and there is peace that Paul Paul, because of his relationship with God, he doesn't want to keep it to himself. He wants to see this flow into Timothy's life, and he says, Here is the trifold blessing of grace, mercy, and peace. And so Timothy, he has a difficult situation, right? He's going to have a very hard time here. And he needs an abundant supply. And notice how Paul words it here. Grace, mercy, and peace from God. What? Relationship. Together. Our Father. And Jesus Christ, our Lord here. What's grace? Grace is, is the gracious goodness of God that God offers to undeserving sinners. Grace takes the guilt of our sin, previous sin, because of Jesus, and relieves the offender of the punishment that's truly deserved. Mercy is God's help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16, that we might find grace and mercy in time of need of the throne of grace. God's help to the discouraged, to the stumbling. And Paul's using this word to remind Timothy that God's sustaining him. And God uh, is going to use Paul to help him in this task as well here, even from a distance. An intense opposition and difficulty. Every new deliverance out of trouble was going to be a new experience of this blessing of God. Grace and mercy and peace. Peace is from is the, is the Greek word that's taken from the Hebrew word for shalom. And it's, and it's, the, the, it, it's something that results from the grace and mercy of God. It's a wholeness and a harmony existing with God. It's a condition of wholeness that gives us stability in life. And notice it's the Father and the Son that are the sources of these three things here. Grace, God's kindness to the guilty and undeserving. Mercy, 
is pity on the wretched who can't save themselves. And peace is reconciling peace of those who are previously alienated from him and from one another. And all these come from the same source. From God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I look at these two verses here, it's the same for the first time that I see the Christian life is a life of relationship, isn't it? It's sourced in God and His calling on our lives as we put ourselves under His will. We'll ask you again, what's your role in the expansion of His kingdom, the building up of His church in our region? How can He use you to contribute to your neighborhood being a beachhead for the gospel in our area? Your role. What's the sphere, the circle of ministry He's called you to impact for Jesus? And since all this is sourced in God's heart for the nations, Who's your true son in the faith or daughter in the faith? It's going to reach human relationships. Who are you, and look at this very simply, who are you teaching to obey Jesus as you are obeying Jesus? Who are you pouring into? God is for you. And this good thing he has for you obey his calling. Grace, mercy, and peace. He gives himself so that you can give all for the glory of God in the face of King Jesus when he soon returns. Grace, mercy, and peace. Let's pray.